Alrighty. Did I miss any blanks? I thought I did okay this morning. Did I do okay, Lee? I think you did because some of them I just threw. Some of them, yes. Okay, just took a guess at it. Okay. Yes. Okay. The Pharisees answered him with ridicule. That's correct. Okay. Oh, the blank after that. Um, they ridiculed that he... Okay, sorry. So you're talking about C under Nicodemus intercedes? Nicodemus intercedes. He had previously heard Jesus speak. He urges them to give Jesus due process. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the Pharisees answer him with contempt or ridicule. They ridicule the teacher of Israel. And I'm just trying to highlight the, the, the fractured nature even within them. Even as they pit themselves against the world, you've been deceived, none of us have believed, and the crowd is accursed. Even when one of their own members and a higher up of their own members asks them a question, they turn on and attack him. Um, these are a vicious people. They're not even loyal to their own. They're just being driven by their desires. So, um, Okay, any other blanks missing? Okay. Okay, questions about what we covered this morning, the 12 verses we covered this morning. Renee Lucia needs a microphone. Okay, when you were speaking about um, how they had a problem not knowing that Christ was born in Bethlehem, yeah. was that unusual in that day for people to move? Um, Somewhat. I mean, I think, I think until even recently, the average person was never more than 30 miles outside of their place of birth. In Israel, it would be a little different because every able-bodied male three times a year, wherever they live, would go to Jerusalem. So I would imagine Israel, more than most nations, had the potential for someone, because all it takes is someone on that journey deciding, you know what, I like it here better than there. Um, so it's not unheard of at all. And the census that they, yeah, the census that they just had to do caused everyone to go back to the town of their birth. So, but the simple point being, the Jews in particular are meticulous record keepers of the lineages. Even in reading the Old Testament, the genealogies, this is a big deal to them. So it's not as though, hey, I wonder who Mary and Joseph descend from would be a difficult question to answer. It wouldn't be. Um, and there's a sense in which, I want to be clear, there's a sense in which if a person were troubled by this, they could ask Jesus. I don't imagine he'd rebuke them. The danger is they don't do the research, they don't ask the questions, but they come to conclusions. That's, that's the danger. So, so it's a completely valid objection or question. Now, wait a second. Messiah's got to be a Davidite. Messiah's got to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, so go ask him. Go, go question him. Um, so that would be the, the, the right thing to do. Yeah. Don Loops. Mm -hmm. uh, going from preaching to meddling, um, how do we recognize and uh, avoid the same kind of arrogance, the same kind of presumption right. in our own? We know so much, right. um, and yet... Sometimes we don't. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Well, go to James. Go to James 3. Um, okay. 
So James 3 contrasts uh, the wisdom from above the wisdom, uh, with the wisdom of, from below. And what marks the wisdom from above is, um, and I think in one sense the Pharisees, even as they're attacking each other, are a perfect example of the wisdom from below. So let's just read the whole section, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness meaning strength under control, not weakness, but controlled. These Pharisees are not controlled. They're, They're attacking Nicodemus, they're attacking, they're cursing the crowd. These people are, you're meant to see, they're, they're kind of out of control, they're, they're, and they're not being reasonable. And Nicodemus asks them a perfectly reasonable question. And they don't answer, they don't even interact with it. They, they could say, we are following protocol. They're not. You know what, you from Galilee too? I mean, that just, it's like something you'd hear on, on the play yard at school. So who is wise among you in understanding by the, his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Pharisees seem to be a pretty good exemplar of that. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I think it's a good habit when you're thinking through things, whether it's in conflict, whether it's especially when you're wrestling with condemning someone, judging someone, establishing, do I actually know what I think I know, right? I mean, I do this a lot in counseling. I'll hear one report and and someone's telling me about what's going on in their home or what's going on at work or whatever, um, without the testimony of two or three witnesses, without it being confirmed, I can't amen that. I'm not, I don't disagree. So if, Don, if you're telling me about your, your manager is a jerk, I, it's not that I don't believe you. I can't affirm that because it's not established. So I need, to, I need to keep in my mind, what actually do I know? I actually have seen or it's been confirmed and what's only been stated. That's, that's one thing. And then checking through your premises. Nine times out of 10, I find I gotta ask questions. I gotta go to someone and say, rather than just bring a rebuke, say, hey, because I've tried to think through it. What, what do I know? What do I not know? What do I think I know? And trying to sort that out. So I think it's a good exercise. Um, really of almost playing the defense attorney. Like, okay, and this is primarily when you're going to potentially condemn someone, you're going to rebuke somebody. Do I biblically have grounds? Is there a biblical clear case? Um, And forcing yourself to go through that. This is what James says. Again, go to James 4, right? Um, We're just in 3, so let's go to 4. So James 4 says in verse um, 11, do not speak evil against one of their brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Pastor Daniel taught on this for me when we were going through James, and I think his, his teaching was absolutely correct. What James is condemning here is a judging outside of biblical principles. So it's similar to what Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment. 
So there is protocols. Brother sins go show him his fault and things like that. But if you're, if you're laying that aside, if you've got your own sets of weights and measures, you know, sometimes you'll meet somebody who will claim they can just know things. I just know I've, I've got discernment, you know. So, okay, so you've got your own standards. You've got your own law. And James is saying, when you, when you follow your own protocol for dealing with conflict, what you're implicitly saying is God's law is insufficient. What you're implicitly saying is it's really a shame we don't have a holy and righteous law that can handle this. It's too bad I've got to take matters into my own hands. And so James is pointing out that when we abandon God's protocol and his, his weights and measures for evidence and for things like that, we're condemning the law and becoming lawless ourselves. We're making ourselves... Uh, uh, not under the jurisdiction of God's law. So it's a, good, it's, a good, it's a good exercise to force yourself to think through biblically, how would I frame this up? Which is start with like, what's the sin? What's the charge? So in the case of Jesus, it would be like, okay, the Messiah, are we right in thinking the Messiah needs to be born in Bethlehem? Yes, he does. Does Jesus' current residence in um, Galilee mean he's not from Bethlehem? No, it doesn't. So what do we need to find out? Has he always lived in Galilee? We need to find that one out. These are not hard questions to answer. Um, these are not hard questions to get to the bottom of. So I would say simply checking your math first, which is part of what it means to be impartial. The, the danger with, with partiality is I know what I want the answer to be. I want them to be guilty because I'm mad. So I don't do due diligence in trying to think through like what possible explanation. Because love hopes all things, believes all things, bears all things. So in one sense you need to be considering what is the best possible explanation for what I've seen that could, could be there. I should be thinking, not in terms of the worst, but the best. What could be the best? And what do I need to verify? What do I need to know? What, what don't I know? And, and um, that's part of why, even like in Matthew 18, it's one-on-one, -on -one, then it's two or three on one, because now you've got two or three people that can also say, now hold on a second, you're assuming something, or hold on a second, you're, you're, you're rushing to conclusions here. And only when you get through that and you've got two or three or four people who say, no, no, this has clearly been figured out. This is, the facts are established. Now we can do something. So I think even that whole process stops any one person from being judge, jury, and executioner. You know, um, that we ought to be diligent. And knowing that you'd have to go, be willing to go all the way through that it's also a check for you. Uh, the, the temptation for us is to just judge them in our heart, not give them due process, and then just avoid them. You know, I mean, this is so Leviticus, not, look, back to Leviticus 19, the second greatest commandment. Um, you may have noticed I go here a lot. But no, but it's, it's, so, it's so foundational to our ethic and to our personal relationships. Because if you buy into what I buy into. It is completely unacceptable for me to think evil of my brother or sister rather than go talk to them. That is not permissible. I either have to be willing to hope the best for them. And there's plenty of times like, I don't know why they did that, but I can hope they had a good reason. I can hope they have a good explanation. You know, someone can say, why'd they do such and such? I don't know, but I can hope they have a good reason. Or if it really troubles me, then I go talk to them. So Leviticus, so again, the point I'm making here is Jesus takes this commandment as his second greatest commandment in the Law and the Prophets. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And my argument is whatever loving your neighbors yourself means, it can't mean less than it does in its original context. It might mean more, there might be more applications of this, but it can't mean less than this. 
And in its original context, what's loving your neighbors yourself contrasted with? What, what, what specific sphere is, are you supposed to love your neighbors yourself? Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Don't bear the fruit of active hatred, which is vengeance and wrath. Don't bear the fruit of passive hatred, which is resentment and avoidance and the cold shoulder. Go talk to him. Um, so honest, honestly, Don, getting back to your, your question, the conviction that I'm going to have to go talk to my brother if I can't hope the best for them is going to force me to do my math. I think when people allow themselves to judge other people without talking to them, now you've got all sorts of room to be sloppy in your judgments because there's no accounting, there's no reckoning. But if I know to my, if, I, if I've already accepted the fact that, look, if I think ill of Don, I'm going to have to go talk to Don. Well, before I go talk to Don, I'm probably going to make sure I actually have my stuff. Like there's an implicit like motivation to check your math that isn't in place if I feel free to think, oh, Don's a jerk, but I don't need to say anything. Now I can be all sorts of room for sloppiness, right? So just even the conviction that like, hey, if you think your brother or sister's done something, you go talk to them, is going to train you in the habit of checking your math and realizing actually, nah. I, I don't really have any sort of grounds to talk to Don. Well, now I can rebuke myself. So now, I, and now I, it is wicked of me to think evil of Don. I become a judge of the law. James's speaking evil against your brothers comes into play. So, so to me, that's the most helpful thing is, is getting the fact that there is never okay for me to think ill of my brother or sister and not be talking to them. So I either have to talk to myself and be like, oh, wait a second, do I have any grounds? Is, is it right of me to, to think this? And then I can rebuke myself. I can correct myself and we're done. Or I got to go talk to Don in this case. And then you better believe I'm going to check and make sure I've thought it through before I do that. If I don't, the second time I will, because the first time I showed that I have no idea what I'm doing, I haven't thought through anything will be educational enough for me that I will probably the second or third time do it. So I find that can, you know, because people will come to me, they'll tell me something about somebody and they'll I'll say, you need to go talk to them. I'm like, I oh, know, I don't, I don't think I do. If it bothered you enough to tell me, then you definitely need to go talk to them. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, no. Um, and uh, it's like, no, dude, Levit go love your brothers yourself. Go do that. Um, and all of a sudden, people start backing down. And what they said to me in loud, flamboyant terms become much more restrained because now there's going to be an accounting. Now there's going to be a, an answer, right? And so implicitly, it forces us to be more accurate and to be more circumspect. So... It's a long answer to your question, Don, but that's some of the things I think. <laughs> that's good. Uh, good stuff. Um, as you were talking, it reminded me of Je Jesus' uh, advice to us also is to, to check the, 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 log. The, the log in our own eye right. first before we... Right. Yep, no, absolutely. 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 Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? Lucas. So in First Corinthians 16, 13, 14, it says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, that all that you do be done in love. Mm. Absolutely. Be strong, be courageous, act like men, and act in love. Yeah, love your neighbors yourself. Bridget. 
Um, first off, thank you for this um, explanation. I think it's really helpful with relationship type stuff. But mm. um, yeah, I was just thinking through like conscience issues. Yeah. I think that can be, I think when it's a black and white sin issue, it can be a lot more sure. evident yeah. that you need to approach somebody. But if you're thinking, okay, I know this person has a different conviction than I do. Right. I don't know that mine's right scripturally. Right. It's just what my conscience feels kind of bound to. Um, and that can be kind of a murkier territory. Right. Um, I don't know if you have any advice on that. Oh, but. no, absolutely. So let's, let's, let's role play this out further then. So I think in honestly, most circumstances where I'm tempted to think ill of someone, it's not concrete sin. I mean, if you think about it in what, how many scenarios do you absolutely not need to ask a single question? I suppose somebody with a big outburst of wrath, you see someone just yell at their wife. Okay. That was wicked. That was corrupt. Or somebody is objectively lying on the phone. They're on the phone like, sorry, I'm stuck in traffic. I can't hear you. Okay. Those actually are kind of rare. Nine times out of 10, in my experience, um, I need more information. It looks bad. It looks bad. So let's take your conscience issue. Somebody's telling me that their favorite TV show is Game of Thrones. And I have it on very reputable information that there's tons of nudity in Game of Thrones. And it bothers me, right? Do I have a, can I charge them with sin? No. Um, there, I still need more information. Maybe they look away during those scenes. Maybe, maybe I've been informed wrongly. I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. And, and what I can first do is try to hope all things, believe all things, bear all things. But let's just say they keep raving about it. It's just really hard for me. They just, they love this thing. And everything I'm hearing is this thing is evil. This thing's corrupt. Um, now I need to go and ask questions. And Romans 14 warns me about imposing my conscience on someone else. But this is, this is, this is I think, helpful. Everything we do needs to be done in faith and in love. So in one sense, it's completely valid for any other believer to come up to me and with the right spirit say, Jeremy, can you help me understand? Can you explain to me how you did such and such in faith and love? Right? And the reason I say faith and love is against this there is no law, but that is the law. We walk in faith and we walk in love. So um, you find out I, I watched um, The Dark Knight Rises and that troubles you. You don't think it's an appropriate movie. You say, Jeremy, can you, can you tell me how you did that in faith and in love? And that's a fair question and that I need to be able to answer, right? Um, and so you go to the person and say, hey, I've been troubled. And what you're in essence doing is you're actually saying, I don't want to judge you in my heart. So I know you've been telling me how much you love this show. Uh, am I wrong? I've heard that there's like consistently like nudity and sex scenes in virtually every episode. Is that not correct? Or is there some way you mitigate it? Or are you actually watching that and delighting in that and praising that? Then you can find out, no, they use VidAngel or no, they fast forward or whatever it is they do, right? And you can go, okay, great, awesome. <laughs> Or they can be like, well, I'm, I'm mature enough to handle it. Well, now you actually have, okay, no, no. You're, <laughs> you need to flee immorality and not endure it. You need to flee it. Um, and now you actually have a biblical issue, right? Well, the, and the other principle is um, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scriptures inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. That fourfold uh, statement, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, I think that order is significant. You teach before you rebuke. Maybe somebody is completely ignorant that 
immorality and, and lust is one of the few sins we're told just carte blanche, run, flee. Because, I mean, you've got, you got the end of Ephesians. We studied it. You put on the armor of God and you stand firm. You stand firm. You fight. And so somebody's like, I'm just going to watch it and I'm going to stand firm and I'm not going to lust. And what they need is instruction. No, God said run. God said run. A faithful response to, to temptations, to morality and lust is to run. And so maybe the first thing you need to do is instruct somebody who's just ignorant. Um, or if they know perfectly well, the person who's raving about it probably doesn't because they'd probably be shrewd enough not to tell everybody they love this, right? So actually the person's like, oh, it's fantastic, I love it, probably is ignorant. Um, and so you can ask questions then you teach before you rebuke. But in issues of conscience, I, I think it's a fair thing. Now, Jane, we are warned in Romans 14, let's go there. Um, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 are the two big conscience passages. Um, so in Romans 14, and what's interesting to compass the two is Romans 8, I'm not to tempt somebody to go beyond their conscience. So in Romans 8, there's people who think that, I mean, not Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 8, there's people who think food sacrificed to idols is tainted by the idols, it's demonic meat, something like that. And don't, don't tempt them against their conscience to eat the meat anyway. Don't be a big baby. Eat the burger. You know, that, that's not helping anybody. In Romans 14, we're dealing with coexisting, which I think is more the issue of differing consciences. Um, so in Romans 14, the issue here is differing consciences. And what's fascinating is that Paul clearly thinks one side of this meat-vegetables debate is right and the other side is wrong. The reason I say that is he identifies one as strong and one as weak. So it's not that Paul is saying, who can know? He, he clearly is on the side of the meat eaters. Ooh, okay. Um, as to the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So Paul has made it clear to anyone reading this letter which side of that debate he comes down on. Um, and yet Paul doesn't say, you go take those weak people and you, you, you make them eat meat. This whole thing is about, and, and the, he's going to use other examples. The assumption is there's going to be a myriad of conscience issues in the body. There's going to be a myriad of consciences who are stronger and weaker. Um, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let, now here's the command. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So the danger is, for the meat eater, is to despise those weak, legalistic, small-faithed vegetable eaters. That's, no, that's the temptation. <sighs> I'm mature, I've arrived, and they've got this limited conscience. Um, and the danger of the vegetable eaters is to condemn the meat eaters, those licentious, indulgent people, right? Give you some modern day examples. Vax or no vax. There's a lot of conscience issues on that, right? And whichever side you come down on, don't despise or condemn the other side. And I'm not talking with the advocates. I think there is room if you, if, if to, to not like the way something's being foisted or the way the government or, or Fauci. I'm just talking about someone else in this room. Somebody else in this room, you got vax, they didn't, or vice versa. Like, dude, Coexist. I think both can be done in faith. Both can be done in faith. And so 
God has, do not pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld by the Lord, is able to make him stand. Then he moves on to a second example. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Some people are Sabbatarian. The Jews clearly are going to be having a hard time working on Saturday. Every... For all of their life, Saturday is a special day. And now you're like, yeah, Saturday is just Saturday. They're Christians today who think Sunday is the Sabbath and that we should not. And as far as it goes with their conscience, dude, leave them alone. Um, now, the, the danger, what Paul's going to say, is don't take your conscience convictions and try to foist from other people. Uh, that's a separate matter. But if a person wants to observe Sunday as a special day to the Lord, right here, Paul says, that's awesome. What he also says is a person who doesn't do that is equally fine as well. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now let me pause. There are some people who don't think this is a conscience issue. They think that the fourth commandment has binding force today for believers and that it applies to Sunday. Let them make their case biblically. I don't buy it, but like that's a welcome Bible study. If someone says, no, 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 I don't think this is a conscience issue. I think this is a command issue. Because, like, I don't think whether or not you sleep with a prostitute is a conscience issue. Right? There, there is law. Christ in, in John 15 and 14 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christ has commandments. Not everything's a conscience issue. So if you think, no, I think Sabbath keeping is not a conscience issue, then let's have our Bible study. Show me. Currently, I'm not persuaded that you're obligated to keep Sunday as the Sabbath. But I'm, if someone wants to have a Bible study on that, great, let's do it. So Paul is talking about conscience issues. And some people think their conscience issues aren't conscience issues, but they're law issues. Then they need to be prepared to show from Scripture why that is the case. Um, one person seems one day is another. Each one should be fully convinced. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's the next point. In issues of motives, everyone's going to give an account. Um, as I, so he writes, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's not as though your neighbor who you suspect might be slacking is going to get away with it. So, so in general, we want to hope the best. We want to think, what, what would, if, if, if the conscience issue is what they're doing and you're troubled by it, just think, what, what biblical text is this? To try to sort out, is this a conscience issue or is it just a wisdom issue? Um, maybe it's not what particular show they're watching. It's how much they watch. You think that's unwise. Like, I don't know. They, they watch 20 hours a week of TV. How do they they got to be neglecting something. I mean, now, first off, we ought to be hoping the best, believing the best. We ought not to be the spiritual Gestapo. But if you really are troubled by that, go ask them. But not in a judgmental, here, we're not told to judge. Hey, um, how, how do you find the time to do all this? I'm just curious. 
I don't want, and what you're really saying is, I don't want to judge you in my heart. So would you help me? Would you open up some of your privacy to me? Would you share to me what you're thinking, how you watched that movie, how you're doing that? How'd you do that in faith and love? That's a valid question for anything. How do you do that? How'd you buy that car in faith and love? How'd you choose that job in faith and love? Total valid question. Done the right way. Not as a answer me or I'm going to condemn you, but just, hey, I just, how'd you think through that? You know? Um, totally valid question because according to the reason I'm saying that is look at verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If I didn't do it in faith, it is sin. So I need to be able to explain how everything I've done I did in faith. Right? Now it's not meant to be a trap. It's just what, what, what that means is it is never okay for me to think God may not want me to do this. You know what? Let's take the chance. That is a dishonoring to God attitude. That is a sinful attitude. That is not the attitude of a faithful slave and servant. So anytime the Lord who knows my heart knows that I think, I'm not sure if this is okay. Well, better not ask too many questions. Let's do it. I've been unfaithful. That's, that's his point there. So, yeah, um, if I haven't thought through it at all, I just act impulsively, I just did it because I wanted to do it, and I didn't do it in faith, then shame on me. Fair enough. You know? Do you want to go, do you have a more specific idea, or is that, is that cover what you're dealing with? Okay. 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 Cassie. Cassandra. Oh, you got it right. Um, okay, so with this conscious issue what if someone is like convicted of something from the holy spirit but i'm not convicted of that same thing but we both have the same holy spirit sure god might want one person to do something for someone has a history with alcohol and they know that alcohol is a snare for them and so they in their conscience decide i don't want to play with fire i'm just not going to touch alcohol and that would, might be an entirely Holy Spirit-led, conviction-driven, right decision for them. And the person sitting right next to them might have no such background, and they enjoy a glass of wine with dinner, and they do that to the glory of God as well. So the Lord, given someone's background and someone's particular snares they struggle with, may well, by His Spirit, drive them to have different conscience. I'll say this, but I do not believe God wants us all to have the same conscience issues. Our consciences, given our background and what we're dealing with, are going to land differently on things, and that's as it should be. It's, it's, it is the case that some people are going to guard themselves from certain temptations and avoid certain things, and others are going to welcome it in. That, that's just the way it's going to be. There's nothing—does that concept that the Lord doesn't want us all to have the same convictions seem strange to you? Yes and no, but also because he's so personal, I understand why— Right. So, I mean, there's all sorts of temptations, temptations to pride, temptations to uh, envy and covetousness that some people are going to be able to do things and watch things and participate in things with a clean conscience that others can't um, because their consciences will be tainted. This is exactly what Paul deals with with the meat sacrificed to idols. He'll bring drink up in 14 um, as well. So I'm not just pulling that example out of the text. Um, look at 14, 13. Let the one, let, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So right off the bat, it alcohol i have i have no doubt there are people who are rightly responding to the leading and convictional holy spirit and are having nothing to do with alcohol and that's right and good and praise god and i have no doubt there are other people who are who are rightly using alcohol um which paul says all things are to be received with thanksgiving and david says he has made wine to gladden the hearts of men i mean like it's in the psalms deal with it and so, and so there are going to be some people that are like, amen, and there's some people who are going to say, I'm going to wait till the resurrection till I enjoy a glass of wine. Jesus does say we're going to drink wine with him in the kingdom, so you won't, you won't be a teetotaler forever. But, but, no, no, there are some things that in this life won't be redeemed. They won't be fixed. And I'm waiting for the resurrection for them to get fixed. So that's, that's totally fine. So, no, the fact that our conscience lands differently than your conscience, and this is what programs parents let their kids watch what technology parents let their kids interact with there's gonna be all types of conscience issues and parents knowing their kids and knowing what their kids struggle with are going to make differing decisions that both paul's whole point here I mean, don't miss this go back to 14 um five one person esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days alike each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, which gets back to the question, what I'm saying, how do you do this in faith and love? How did you become fully convinced in your own mind to do this? Might be another way of saying it, right? Because um, that is the standard. What you're not allowed to do is doubt. What you're not allowed to do is say, maybe it's okay, but I did it. You're not, that's not an invalid position. But look at verse six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. So Paul makes it clear, both the day keeper and the day not keeper pleases God and honors God. God is honored by both. So I'd say the same thing would hold true with, with other things. Now, it doesn't mean that discussions aren't warranted, because if you're not doing it to discuss, if you're not doing it to judge or condemn, you, we may sharpen each other. You may say to a parent, I notice you've let your kids have smartphones. What do you do to guard against the temptation? What do you do to guard against the, the allure of social media or pornography or things like that? And maybe they've got some great answers or maybe they said, I didn't think of that. In which case, like you totally should, right? Um, so it, it's not saying that discussions like this can't be had, but Paul's forbidding is me saying my conscience is right, adopt my conscience. You should really become like me. You should observe days like I observe days. Or you weakling, you should stop observing days or whatever. So we can discuss it. We can talk about it. I know parents do. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? Great. What you're not to do is judge your brother or sister. Connie wants in on this. Hold on. No, no, mic microphone, Connie. Share your wisdom with the internets. I was going to practice my voice. <clears throat> if you, I just wonder, was wondering uh, if, uh, you know, when you're older, when you come to know the Lord, and you've been through a whole lot, and uh, uh, some of it, uh, family and all, you know, friends and all, it was a lot of alcohol involved, and... Uh, 
So when, when I become Christian, I, I never had one desire. I just, and I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it for my kids, my grandkids, or my great-grandkids, right. and one great-great one. Come on. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it, it, people might think that's not, I'm not re responsible for them, but I am in my mind. I don't want to and, see them. And your convictions done to the glory of God, please God. That's fantastic. Paul says amen. Amen. Yeah. But Good. It, I mean, I don't expect anyone else to do it. Well, be nice, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. The temptation for us is to think anyone with strict, stricter convictions is a legalist than me. I mean, amazingly, we're all baby bear porridge. Amazingly, we're all exactly right. And everyone to the right of me is a legalist, and everyone to the left of me is a libertine. Shocking how I just happened to land per... Right. No, but, but there's a sense in which I wouldn't hold my position if I didn't think it was best. So, of course, I chose the positions that I thought were best. I landed where I thought made the most sense to me. Um, so, yeah, in one sense, I do think I'm right, or I would have done something different. But recognizing that there can be right answers for differing people, there isn't one size fits all right answer. It may be wholly appropriate for... When I first, when I first got saved, because music was such a snare for me and a god, I sold my guitar, CD player. I, I knew I needed to keep it away from me for a bit. It wasn't about seven or eight years later that I started picking guitar back up and now it seems that God's let me redeem that here but there's definitely a time in my life where, I, where the right thing to do the God-honoring thing to do is get it away from me um, and that's not something everyone else needs to do but given my proclivities and my temptations that was absolutely what I needed to do so yeah you smash idols yeah okay questions other qu oh. Deb Gustafson well, I've been chewing on this because it seems like it comes around with myself as a young adult and mm -hmm. then my kids when they're in that stage mm -hmm. and now my grandchildren. It sounds like they're hearing a lot about intolerance <laughs> and tolerance mm -hmm. and yet by the purest definition of the whole thing, right. this is that kind of a conversation is you got to be tolerant wisely. <laughs> well, me, you got to do it biblically. Well, me, Am me, I correct? Or how does that all fit yes, in? Yes, but there's been a radical change to the definition of tolerance that I want to I highlight. Uh, later this afternoon, D.A. Carson's got a book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, and he's got like a five-minute summary. I'll try to remember to post to Facebook if you want to see it. It's well said. I will ape and, and butcher it. But basically, um, Voltaire is the Enlightenment philosopher who said, I, I may detest what you say, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. That's the old view of tolerance. So into the old view of tolerance, what was tolerated were people. You didn't imprison people who said things you didn't like. Now Voltaire, even the way he says that, makes it clear he was reserving the right to attack what you say is stupid, ignorant faulty logic it tolerance doesn't mean i'll leave your position alone you know you you, you think um you think oh i don't know you think uh that two plus two equals six and you know you're like i will not you can say that i will tolerate you can say that but i've reserved the right to attack your idea 
And, and the assumption, it comes out of sort of a modernistic assumption, is that there is a truth, it's knowable, and it's desirable to know. And the assumption is the best way to get at the truth is to let in the marketplace of ideas, people battle out their ideas, and the, the, the winner will be still standing, the truth will stand. And so the best, the best um, community discourse is basically with very few restrictions. I mean, we recognize that crying f fire in a crowded building when there's no fire, things like that, with very, very few restrictions, um, freedom of speech. That, that was the view of tolerance, certainly, that our Constitution was written in, in view, within view. Now, um, in part because there's a deep-seated suspicion that there is such a thing as the truth, or if there is a truth, that it can be known, because of a deep-seated suspicion that all this is these these are some of the assumptions people today have um, at least the academics do that truth claims really are power plays because there is no truth or if there is a truth you can't know it or at the very least you can't know that you know it therefore really what people are doing with truth claims is trying to oppress people so when I want to define marriage as one man and a woman, I really am just doing that to try to exclude some people. When I'm trying to say that this is right and this is wrong, I just want power and I want to exclude and I want to punish. And so under the new definition of tolerance, you don't tolerate, I, you don't tolerate people, you tolerate ideas. Nowadays, a tolerant person says, well, this is my position, but I'm no more right or wrong than you. You've got your position and that's just as valid as my position. And What's, what we're tolerating now is, is ideas. Voltaire's definition, our founding father's definition, you didn't tolerate ideas. You vigorously attacked ideas that you thought were dumb, stupid. But what you don't do is lock up your political opponents. What you don't do is lock up the people who disagree with you. You tolerate them. So if you're tolerant, you don't have a gulag, right? Um, that's, that's the idea. So under the new definition of tolerance, now we're tolerating every position is equally valid. And, and Carson's point is that under this new definition of tolerance, ironically, it is incredibly intolerant of anyone who doesn't hold this new definition. In other words, the way you test tolerance, how do you deal with that which most disagrees with you? Well, we know how it deals with that, which is cancel culture. You get them, you get people, I mean, it's, it's bizarre. If anyone's ever read 1984, which is a sad, depressing book, but these apology tours people are forced to do. I've learned a lot and I've had a time to reflect upon my tweet and I've realized now how much harm I caused when I liked that photo that had a Confederate flag in it. And I only am sorrowful that I've let down the team and that I caused harm and pain and I really hope, I mean, it's, it's like one of those coerced confessions out of 1994, it's, it's sad because what we won't tolerate is anyone who deviates from what this new tolerance means. It is absolutely fascist in that sense. And so it's, so Carson argues that the new definition of tolerance is both contradictory, incoherent, and immoral. Immoral because it proves so ridiculously intolerant if anyone who doesn't buy the definition of tolerance. Hey, I'm not sure tolerance means that. Shut up, hate crime. No, people are getting arrested for things they tweet. And incoherent because what does tolerance mean unless that I first disagree with you? You don't tolerate what you agree with. I mean, it's incoherent. Do you, do you, what do you think of, uh, what do you think of, um, you know, uh, oh, I don't know, Islam or something. I, I could say I tolerate it means I don't agree with it, but I'm not in favor of silencing and jailing people who do. 
But if I, if I think Islam is just as accurate and just as good of a method as me, what does it mean to mean I tolerate? It doesn't make any sense. Toler- tolerance presupposes disagreement. Right, 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 exactly. So it's incoherent and it's immoral. It's immoral because it's incredibly intolerant. It's basically, if you buy our premise and definition, we're all tolerant. No, Carson does a great job. I'll post it. He does it in 10 minutes. I just butchered it. But, but yeah, no, but even showing that, because it's effective on Christians because we don't want to be judgmental. We're told not to judge. And so when the unbeliever says to me, you're being judgmental, my conscience is like, I certainly am at times. And so there's a, no, there's a very real sense in which it, it, we should be like, well, let me check and make sure I'm not being judgmental. But seeing through this, is, this new definition of tolerance and acceptance is not biblical and godly, right? Um, it's like our, our, our culture's new definition of love is unconditional affirmation. And it gets something right there. But if you think that's what love means, then Jesus loving you means he affirms you, which is there's no call to repentance, there's no sin, because you're wonderful just the way you are. Now the half-truth of it, Jesus' love meets you where you are. Jesus' love invites the most broken, the most thirsting, the most corrupt, the most sinful person, and will meet him where he or she is, but it won't leave him there. But if you only define love as unconditional affirmation, then what happens if I think something you've done or choice you've made is wrong? I hate you. That's gonna have implications to your preaching of the gospel. If you buy that definition, right? That's gonna that's gonna impact that. So yeah, we, we more and more live in a day where if I disagree with you, I must hate you, which is really unhelpful for, for dialogue. The assumption is I only disagree with you because I want to impress you. It couldn't be that I actually hold a view. I just hold this view so that I can have a justification to hate people, which is why we immediately put on, you must therefore, whatever you disagree with, you must be afraid of or you must hate. Those are the only options. The only reason you disagree with Islam is you're afraid of Islam, you're Islamophobic, or you're a bigot. Couldn't possibly be that I reject the claims of Islam as true or false. Um, that This is the new, the new definitions, the new speak that is... is uh, really making modern discussion and dialogue very difficult to have. So anyway, um, we got like time for one more question. But Carson's book, The, the Intolerance to Tolerance, is very helpful in thinking through this. Very helpful. Okay, who's, who's got our last semifinal question? I can't believe none of you asked about the pericope of the adulterous woman. Seriously? Okay. No, that's fine. We'll deal with it next week. We'll deal with it next week. There you go. Okay, one question. Anybody? We got five minutes. Oh, Jerry. In 2 Samuel, you read the passage, yeah. what was that, uh, from 12 to 14? Seven. Or, I'm sorry, yeah, 7, 12 to 14. Yes, sir. On 14, you stopped in halfway through that verse. Can you yes. explain the part where, uh, where it says, when he commits iniquity? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's, so let, let's read it. Um, 2 Samuel 7. Um, Verse, let's pick it up in verse 12. When your days are, you're right, I dropped it because there's an explanation. I didn't want to take the time to explain it. Um, my, my point was to make the connection between this and Psalm 2, that Psalm 2 is clearly picking up the language of the Davidic covenant. But we can take a few minutes to try to answer this now. So the Davidic covenant, when your days are full, 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the Davidic covenant does not only have Jesus in view. You have to conclude that. The Davidic covenant is a promise of an unbroken secession. And clearly, the first reference, Solomon. Solomon's the one who's going to build the physical house, and Solomon's the one who's going to go astray, and God will not take his Holy Spirit from him, but will bring him back. So the Davidic covenant is, is actually looking at a line going out from David that will culminate in the Messiah. Some, some, some prophecies are just talking about the Messiah. The Davidic covenant encompasses a perpetual dynasty or dynasty, a perpetual throne, um, and it gets to the Messiah, but it does through Solomon, and it does through Rehoboam, and it does through the next king, and the next king, and the ne- all the way down. Um, it doesn't just have Jesus in view. Now, by the time you get to Psalm 2, where it's lifting the language, it becomes clear somewhere in this descent line is going to be a Davidite. So, so there's two... This is, this is Carson again. There's two ways the Davidic covenant can be fulfilled. David can have a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son, world without end, amen. Or, eventually, you can have a unique son who doesn't have a replacement. The Davidic covenant here doesn't spell out which of those two options there is. All you're told is it'll be unending. It won't end. It's sin-proof. Sin can't end it. And what, what are the three? I'll build you a house. Okay, it's death-proof, sin-proof, and eternal. Um, that's what we know in the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. Psalm 2 takes that, unites that with uh, Messiah, because there's no mention of Messiah in the Davidic covenant. It's just king, Davidic king. Psalm 2 takes that, connects Davidic king with Messiah and son, which you get from here, I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. And now we're looking for someone particularly special because in Psalm 2, all the nations of the world are told, you better make peace with the son before he breaks you. And that's not David. And that's not David's son. That's not Solomon. Um, is As great as their might was, they suffered military defeats. The person spoken of in Psalm 2 is going to have a global kingdom. And every knee will bow. And he's going to break them with a rod of iron. That gets picked up in Revelation three times where Christ is said to have a rod of iron. So doing the biblical theology, what we get from this Davidic covenant, there'll be an unbroken, unending throne for David. And, and some of the Davidites will sin and God won't cast them off. So it gets built up upon as new, new revelation adds to that. Psalm 2 being the next big addition. Oh, hey, apparently somewhere along the line, there's going to be a Davidite who's pretty unique, pretty power, uniquely powerful. Okay, so it's, it's part of the information, but it's not the full information. There's more information to come. So the Davidic covenant itself is multi-generational. It's dealing with multi generations and all but one of those generations will have sin and so it talks about their sin so from that to answer your question simply the davidic covenant doesn't just talk about jesus it can't just talk about jesus it actually talks about the entire line of descent that gets to jesus yeah 
Cool. We're at time. Thank you very much. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.